Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Hi, folks. Welcome back to another exciting episode with our guest, Jimmy Hinton, who is an expert on sexual abuse of minors in the church. And last week, we heard part of his story about how his father, a pastor, was molesting little kids, and nobody knew about it. And Jimmy and his mother, Clara, had to turn in their own father. And so we're going to continue my conversation with Jimmy and find out how how it all panned out. So here's Jimmy. Your your dad is in prison. He is. He went to prison for life. Mm-hmm. So from your research and interviews with like inmates and prison employees and stuff, I mean, there's this there's this idea out there that, you know, okay, the inmates will will kill a cop if they get put in gen pop, right? He's going to be killed. And then there's the, the other thing, too, is, oh, if a child molester gets put in gen pop, oh, they'll, they'll take care of him. They'll kill him because molesting children is the lowest of the low, even among criminals. Is that is that true? I mean, what, what is it like for a pedophile in prison? It, it is... Um... It varies wildly. The treatment of pedophiles varies wildly in prison. My my dad's experience has been very positive, and I know firsthand from going to uh, to visit him in prison. I'm treated like a celebrity when I walk in there. It's the weirdest, bizarre no thing. When I walk in, I mean, these guys, and I I don't visit very often. Um, when I go in there. They can just tell that I'm related to them just by the way I look, I guess. And they'll walk in, they'll be like, hey, you're, you know, you're Hinton's son, aren't you? Do you and look like, like your father? I don't think so. I mean, they must have had a picture or something. But I, the, the one time I wrote his prison, you have to write the prison number down. So you don't write the inmate's name, you write their prison number down. And um, I wrote his number down the one time and, and the guy... The guy didn't look up and he saw me write the number down and uh, he's like, oh, Hinton. He's like, and then he looks up. He goes, oh, you're his son. He goes, you must be the preacher. And I was like, what parallel universe am I living in? Oh, my goodness. And then I walked back into the into the visiting room and it's packed. I mean, there are people, about 100 people in there. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad walks out and they're like, hey, how you doing? you know the co's in there like they're they love him in there they love him in there oh absolutely yeah so it's Uh, not that is just it's not what people think i i think um the high profile inmates um they're i think they're big targets you know jerry sandusky is literally three miles from here Mm -hmm. he's in one of somerset's prisons we have two prisons that outnumber our town's population um, many of the inmates are, are sex offenders in both of our prisons. Jerry Sandusky is one of them. And you have Cosby um, over there too. Yeah. Well, Cosby, we were supposed to get Cosby in Somerset. And then at the last minute, they changed that. And they kept him. There's a brand new prison um, out near Philly. And they kept him out there. Mm-hmm. But Somerset, before this new prison was built, Somerset is the only prison that has an actual geriatric, geriatrics unit. Um that's basically like an in-house nursing home for, oh. for inmates. So the elderly inmates, uh, which raises an interesting question, when my dad's health starts to decline, will he be transferred to Somerset? You know, there's a good chance that'll happen. Hmm. But so, so they're not technically in, in gen pop. They're with the, the other elderly inmates that are serving a, a lifetime sentence. Well, my dad is in gen pop. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think he'll remain there until his health declines. Mm. But, you know, the only way, the only way they'll move you out of um, general population is if uh, there's a very real threat. Um, you know, like if, if people are threatening your life or if, um, if you're a high profile, well, I mean, look at um, uh, Larry Nasser. you know, he, he got beaten to a pulp within the first couple of weeks that he was in federal prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then okay. they had to move into isolation. You know, but generally, I mean, what I've seen and I've seen plenty of I mean, I visit the prisons. I've done interviews with people at, at our prisons uh, when I go in there. Um, you know, coworkers or not coworkers, workers will point out sex offenders and they'll be like, you know, this guy over here who's never causes any problem. They're like, that's one of our worst sex offenders. And they'll point them out and say, like, these guys just keep their head low. They're always polite. They're, they're not problematic whatsoever uh, with staff or with other inmates. And part of that is um, preservation. You know, they know if they cause a stir, they're dead meat. Mm-hmm. so but you know i think i think generally speaking uh pedophiles learn very early on to keep a low profile and just to be uh polite to everybody and, and be super nice and that minimizes the chance that they're going to get targeted and you went in to talk to your dad and visit him and you wanted to know how did he get away with this what techniques did he use mm-hmm. um you know you talk a lot about the differences between grooming and testing. So yeah. the stuff that you've discovered is very disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't ask my dad for details because I don't want to know details about the actual abuse. You know, that's something that, that he knows that's off limits. And uh, if I let him talk about it, I guarantee he would but yeah. I don't want to hear it. So you can't I, unsee that in your brain. No, no, no. no. And I don't want to know. I don't need to know. Um, I have no desire to know. So I'll ask him things about, uh, you know, specific techniques, like how, how do you know that you're going to get away with the abuse? Um, and especially the abuse in plain sight, which happens far more often than what researchers say far more often. Um, and it's all very intentional. It's hundred percent on purpose. It's very, very intentional. Um, so that's when I started making these connections about kind of the sleight of hand. Um, my dad didn't have the terminology for it, but uh, after I read Sleight of Mind, um, I discovered the term, you know, that the spotlight of attention, where they'll come in and they'll grab your spotlight of attention, which is only the size of your thumbnail. You know, if you hold it out at arm's length, our thumbnail is the size of our spotlight of attention. Everything else that happens outside of that your brain is literally making up. Mm-hmm. It's not seeing it. It's making information up constantly. And that's what was so powerful about doctors, Macknick and Martinez Conde and yes. their presentation that, that they did. Um, and so the techniques, you know, a lot of what they do is really benign, uh, but it's just, it, it's constantly touching, touching on the shoulder, touching on a child's hip, um, touching various places that are, that are benign enough that we're not weirded out by it. And what they're looking for, and this is why I use the term testing instead of grooming, mm-hmm. what they're looking for is the parent's eyes, what their reaction is. Mm-hmm. Can they maintain eye contact with, with the parent while they're touching all over their kid? Where do the parent's eyes keep, every time the abuser's hands move, do the parent's eyes move with the hand? And it sounds like it's, it's so subtle and so simplistic. Um, but it's highly effective. And from there, what happens is there, there's a progression. So the, you know, the abuser will move from a touch on the shoulder to then they'll slide their hands over the breast and, you know, they'll start touching in places that are no touchstones, which are still benign enough that if a parent sees it and says something, they can explain it away. Well, my goodness, you know, in fact, they'll make the parent feel bad for even bringing it up. Mm-hmm. You know, I had no idea that, you know, my, my fingers were touching in an area they weren't supposed to. And, you know, my goodness, I'm so sorry. And, you know, I I don't know. I don't know what happened. You know, they'll explain it away in a heartbeat. Yeah. So, you know, if the parent fails the test, 
then there's a, a really rapid progression from there. Then it goes to full on grabbing and groping and, you know, they'll reach behind and, um, you know, grab other private parts um, from behind, from front. And my dad talked about this. He wrote about it in letters in very, um, very methodical detail, you know, step by step. And, it, and as he writes about it, he's not only talking about what he's doing, but he's also talking about what the parent's thinking and seeing or not seeing and what the child is thinking and feeling. So there's this hyper awareness of what's going on from the perspective of the abuser. They know exactly what the intended uh, target is, what the intended thought process is, what the likely thought process is. Um, and they know that it's torturesome for the child. And they know the child, the abuser knows that the child is thinking in their mind, why is mommy, mommy or mommy and daddy seeing this and they're not doing anything about it? Mm, that's so heartbreaking. Yeah. And that's both part of the thrill for the abuser. And it's what guarantees the silence of the child without them ever having to threaten the child. Yeah, you say they, the thrill, it thrills the abuser. They they get off on this. Absolutely. They're tricking people and yeah. almost, quote unquote, getting caught. Yeah. And my dad actually, it, it's interesting you use that word because my dad talks about getting caught. Because I asked him, you know, I asked him in a letter, what, aren't you afraid of getting caught? And his answer is, um, he didn't say it in exactly these words, but it, but it was, you know, pretty close. But he said, oh, we actually welcome getting caught. He's like, because if we get mm -hmm. caught, you know, one, the, the person can't prove that we did anything wrong. And he explains, he goes through all the processes of, you know, what they're doing and all the techniques. He was like, they can't prove that we did anything wrong. So he said, the only thing it does when we get caught is it emboldens us to practice more, um, more rehearsed things and to get more brazen in the way that we abuse that child. So that's mm -hmm. the really scary thing mm -hmm. is that when we back off, when we suspect abuse, and we start backing off and, and we start feeling bad or we feel like our gut was wrong or whatever, um, that child who's, who's being abused gets it worse. Mm. And that's why it's so important for us to recognize what these techniques are and to, and to intercept them and to intervene unapologetically. Yes. So I tell people, you know, one of the things is um, to really listen to the words, listen to the language and abusers will intentionally say things that are just so far off the wall and so bizarre that they're looking for a reaction and they're seeing, is there anybody in this room who will question me on this? And so they'll say things like, you know, I had one guy say, um, you know, he was a school teacher for troubled teens. And he said, I just love my kids so much. He said, I have this one boy that you know, I pick them up every morning on the way to school and I bathe them every morning before we get to school. This is a teenage boy. This is like a 13-year-old kid. Mm. So I encourage people, when you hear things like that, there's such a shock reaction that, that it literally stuns us to where we're like, did I just hear what I thought I heard? Yeah. If you look at, if you look at, um, some of the articles that were written by the parents of the victims who were in their same room when Larry Nasser abused them, they'll talk about that thought process. Did I see what I thought I just saw? No, couldn't be. You know, and they explain, they explain their way out of it. So what I encourage people to do is if you think you ever, if you know you heard what you just heard or you saw what you just saw, call it out immediately and do it very loudly and make sure that there are other people in the same room who are hearing it. And put the abuser on the spot. Be like, did you just say that you bathe your student on the way to school every morning? Could you explain that? And you want to watch them panic really quick because they're not expecting it. They're not expecting people to push back. But they're really good out. at explaining things away. Aren't yeah. They? Well, they're great at explaining things away unless they're put on the spot very mm -hmm. publicly and um, within earshot of other people. If you put them on the spot that quickly and you just turn their words right back on them, did you just say and repeat exactly what they just told you? You'll see them freak out. Well, that's a good technique. Yeah. 
but Scream. we have to be willing to do it yeah. and we have to be able to think on our feet and we have to be quick scream bloody murder that's what yeah <laughs> don't be quiet yeah my husband and i were were talking about this the other day i mean you have to be sick in the head to molest a child that just i, I can't even imagine you know any of my family members doing doing that to me or my siblings right. um so you've made it very clear that these people are wolves in sheep's clothing yes they are not saved they are not blood-bought believers what else is going on in with pedophiles are they insane are they mentally ill are they sociopaths i mean what what else are we dealing with here yeah. So I think, I, I mean, it's kind of interesting because I come, I think I'm kind of a, this unique um, person because I'm the son of a pedophile. Uh, I'm a pastor. I reported my dad. Um, I believed my sister. I had victims in the church. We had to walk a church through the aftermath of abuse. Um, and I'm a theologian, you know, so there are like all these different angles and I've tapped the scientific community um, because I think we, we need to merge these different fields together. Um, so you're a unicorn. So, yeah, I am definitely a unicorn. I'm a very bizarre, um, <laughs> I don't even know what I am. Um, but, uh, you know, I always start because my training is in theology and because I'm a believer, um, I always like to start with the Bible. And uh, so I so I had to do a lot of deconstruction and just go back because who I thought God was, you know, the God who was spoon fed to me my whole life um, didn't make sense. Did not make sense anymore to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had to figure out who he was and I had to figure out what he says about abusers because I kept hearing all these things like, oh, all are welcome in the church. Right. And I just always believed it. I'd heard it so many times that I I just accepted that as gospel fact. Oh yeah, everybody everybody's welcome in the church. Well, then I start reading the Bible and I'm like, wait a second, there were all kinds of people who were like, they were they were told to go get um, deceptive people. That's a class of sin all on its own, uh, which is all the stuff that you hear about wolves, all the scripture references to these wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, Never is there a hint that you're supposed to chase them down, give them community, welcome them in the church, give them accountability partners. Can you imagine? That's hmm. an absolute insanity. Because it doesn't work. Um, no. If you have to have a babysitter, if you can't be trusted to the point where you have to have a babysitter when you worship with other people, you shouldn't be around other people. Right. Um, and so I started... I started looking from a from a theological perspective, you know, really trying to understand what God says about people like my father. Um, and there's this really crystal clear picture that emerges from Scripture that's rooted in God's foundation of righteousness and justice. This balanced these balanced scales um, and this picture of justice, and that is you should be able to recognize very easily who deceptive people are. And to keep them away from innocent people. That's the most boiled down, simple, repetitive message that you find through the Bible cover to cover. Find out who the deceptive people are, not the people who struggle with temptation. We're not talking about those people. Um, the Bible has a very clear distinction where it separates out people who are wolves. They are people who masquerade as people of righteousness for the very purpose of stealing souls away. They dress mm -hmm. like sheep. They walk like sheep. They bat like sheep. Um, but they're inwardly ravenous wolves. And, uh, you know, I talk about that in the book too. Like Jesus uses that language not to describe what they do, but who they are. Mm -hmm. It's an identity marker. It's not a behavioral marker. It's an identity, mar an identity marker. It's who they are. Um, and so every time that language comes up, wolves, uh, deception, um, people who, uh, who are, um, uh, what does Paul call them? Um, imposters. Mm -hmm. uh, when that language is used, the message unanimously in scripture is avoid such people, have nothing to do with these people. 
it's not talking about worldly people who are not Christians. It's talking about people who bear the name of Christ, who are masquerading and oppressing and devouring other people, have nothing to do with them. Paul says in um, 2 Timothy 2.13, I think it's 2 Timothy chapter um, chapter 2 or 3, um, I think is one of the clearest pictures of deceptive people in all of the Bible. Uh, it's so crystal clear. Um, and it just gives this progression of, you know, they're, they're vile. They do these things in plain sight. They're, um, uh, they, they pretend, they masquerade, they're imposters, they deceive. Um, they steal away people who are really struggling with temptation. They come in, they, they take vulnerable people and they sexually um, entice them. You know, there are all these things that, that Paul describes. And then at the end of that, he says, um, while evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So they're both deceiving and there's this self-deception, uh, which matches nicely with all the stuff that we read about uh, from the secular world when they're talking about pedophile abusers. Um, they call it thinking errors or uh, what's another, the technical term for it is, um, oh, now my mind's going blank. Yeah. Uh, but it's the self-lies. You know, they tell themselves, mm -hmm. you know, the child was coming on to me. Well, they know full well that that child was not, was not coming on to them, uh, but they're self-deceived. And so mm -hmm. they tell themselves that, hoping that other people will, will buy into it. And that's the self-deception part. So again, the Bible is pretty clear. Have nothing to do with these people. They're warped and they're twisted. So, so you know, they think, are sociopaths, you think? I think so. You know, uh, there are a lot of studies that talk about this um, kind of this progression with pedophile, serial pedophile abusers, um, where so many of them, I forget what the number is, but a whole lot of them are, are true sociopaths. Um, and there's yeah. even a portion of them who are genuine psychopaths. Mm. Uh, so they move over from sociopath to psychopathy, where, you know, in psychopathy, they literally have no conscience, period. No remorse, nothing. None. So, you know, a sociopath might have a tinge of a conscience, but they'll override it. Where the psychopath, they have no conscience. And in fact, their pleasure centers light up like a Christmas tree when mm. they know that the kid is being tortured. Oh, and so I, I mean, my opinion is that these kind of people cannot be rehabilitated. They cannot yeah, be brought back into society and especially not back into church. But unfortunately, the church church's treatment of of victims are are far worse than uh, the abuse itself. Yeah. How are the churches enabling these pedophiles to continue to abuse children? Yeah. Uh, off the top of my head, number one, letting them in. Uh, yeah. Number two, right? Number two, giving them anonymity, um, circumventing the law, circumventing the sex offender registry by keeping it a secret from your church. That is the most insane, asinine policy that I've ever seen, and it's incredibly common. And churches have sent me, I've had church leader after church leader after church leader after church leader. I have a whole file folder of these covenant agreements between the church leaders and the registered sex offenders where they keep it a secret from the church. Um, and they, they assign the babysitters I call them babysitters because it's just, <laughs> to me, it's so ridiculous. These accountability partners, yeah. um, it's the two adults or one or two adults who, you know, the registered sex offender has to check in with them or sit beside them at, at church. I'm like, what? that does nothing. Mm -hmm. The amount of, with the advancement of technology, the amount of voyeurs that, that I have, cases that I'm brought where they're like, you know, my goodness, we, we had this guy here and he had a cell phone and we had no idea he was doing upskirts and, you know, he was walking into the bathroom with his accountability partner and he's pulling his phone out while he's, you know, in the bathroom stall and he's sticking it underneath and he's, he's getting voyeuristic shots of little kids in the bathroom. 
So your I mean, dad was. I've lost count of how many cases I've personally had of those. Yeah. Like this is the reality of what these guys are doing. So your 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 dad, um, he was only was he only doing this to girls or were there boys involved too? For our knowledge, it was only girls. Oh, okay. uh, we suspect we have a couple possible instances that we thought of where he could have abused males, but but we have no evidence of that. Um, that's just kind mm. of a a gut feeling but uh to our knowledge all of his victims were female yeah so you got you got somebody with a babysitter taking pictures in the bathroom or scoping out the church and then jimmy you look like the bad guy because you come in there and tell them uh you know you need to you need to get kick them out and mm -hmm. they want to you know Oh, you know, we want to forgive him and forget, and you know he's sorry, and you know. Yeah, the problem is it doesn't work that way, <laughs> you know. Um, and I, I, it's so hard to do this without sounding like a, a zealot and a fanatic <laughs> and a paranoid person. But I'm, but I'm none of those. Um, I am. I'm a realist and I hear story after story after story after story, um, consistent patterns where these guys come in. I had a prison psychologist sit with me and I mean, she was really blunt um, and used a lot of um, colorful language. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was not so much a Christian, um, mm -hmm. but she was an incredible, incredible person, gave me her time. And uh, she used some really descriptive language to describe what these guys are doing in, in their prison cells. These guys are doing this um, where they're creating child porn from um, uh, I hate that term. David, um, David Pittman brought that up to me that he, he drew attention to that term. He's like, I really don't like that term. So I'm trying not to use that um, because pornography implies consent. Um, Graphic child images, exploitation, uh, they'll create these images by, uh, she calls it old school Photoshop, where they cut magazines apart in prison. These guys are doing this. Yeah. Every single day, they, they confiscate this contraband where they're taking magazines and they're cutting faces off and matching that to the right body type. And they have these catalogs in, you know, in prison um, with little kids in a swimsuit. And they'll tape the head on every single day. She's like, if they're doing that in prison where they're monitored and they know it's going to be confiscated as soon as they create it. She looked me right in the eye. She goes, what in the H do you think they're doing when they're coming into the churches when they leave this prison? Wow. Because they have a whole lot more access to a whole lot worse images. And they're, they're taking the heads. They're taking pictures with their camera, which they shouldn't have anyway because they shouldn't be trusted with a smartphone or internet ever again. If they're really repentant, they won't have one. Right. Uh, but they're taking these pictures and they're, you know, then they're digitally uh, manipulating them. They scour Facebook. You don't have to have an account on Facebook to look at um, public pictures. All these parents and grandparents that think it's so cute to post pictures of their kids in the bathtub. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> That's that's crazy. So that's what these guys are doing when they come into church. So, you know, these accountability partners, the babysitters, it's just a bad idea. They shouldn't be anywhere near children because they prove that they can't be around children without sexualizing them and creating victims. They proved that. I didn't. I don't I shouldn't have to prove that. These guys already did and they went to prison for it. So what are a few things we can do to protect our church members? Yeah, so I I think one of the things is to stop giving so much power to church leaders. And I'm saying that as a church leader. Um I can't I can't wrap my mind around this notion that it's so ingrained in church members, the lay, you know, the little underlings, right? The little lay church members, we treat them like I say we, a lot of church leaders treat lay church members like they're the little underlings and that the leaders are the, the, they're the sole decision makers of the church and everything has to come through the leaders. 
that's utter nonsense. Hmm. So when you have somebody, when you have somebody who's on the sex offender registry, um, every single living, breathing person sitting in that church who's part of that church, right? It's the body of Christ. It's not people sitting on a pew who are under the thumb of authoritarian leaders. These are living, breathing members of Christ's body. Every single person has a responsibility to inform other people, to warn other people, to help keep other people safe. Um, so if there's somebody there who's on the sex offender registry and the leaders think it's cute to keep that hidden from the church, hmm. print off the sex offender registry and start handing it out to other church members. Wow. There's nothing that says you have to go to the church leaders and get their permission to do it. But church leaders, uh, you know, they'll say things like, well, that's, that's rebellion, you're rebelling against the leadership. That's not rebellion. Nope. Um, that's information. That's passing information that comes from a public registry. That's there for a reason. These people are on the registry for a reason. It's not just the government wasting money saying, well, we think it would be neat if we put these people on a registry and made it a felony in all 50 states if they don't uh, update their information every six months. Um, we think it would be fun to do that so that churches can circumvent that and not inform their churches that they're on the registry. Like it makes no sense. Mm -mm. So I think there's a lot more power in the church community than what we give ourselves credit for. And I think we've got to, we've got to obliterate this narrative that it's rebellious against church leaders if you're informing other people of somebody who, who poses a threat to children, that's a real threat. That's not a perceived threat. I'm talking about registered offenders, people who spent time in prison. They were convicted. They were found guilty. They're a threat to children. Yes. Now, as far as the children go, um, I mean, what, what do you tell your, your kids about sex and protect protect them from predatory behavior you know a yeah. lot of these um church communities especially the ones that i was involved with they didn't have sex ed yeah. um i had it in the public school but you know they have this idea that oh don't talk about sex until somebody's engaged and they're going through premarital counseling and then they learn about sex yeah Oh. Well, I thought Sheila Gregoire did an excellent job talking about that. How, yeah, you know, in her book, um, which I see behind you, The Great Sex Rescue, I have mine right here. Um, it's it's phenomenal. Um, I think she is an expert in that area, um, and I think people really need to to buy this book um, to get the answer to your question there, uh, because I think Sheila can answer that far better than I can. Um, but it's just it's common sense stuff, you know. Little girls, you shouldn't be a 25-year-old woman and not be able to name your body parts. Yeah, I know people I mean, <laughs> just, that's, just like that. That's nuts. Yeah. That's unacceptable. And that's why they're um, open to, um, to people abusing them. They don't right. know what sex is. They don't know what masturbation is. They don't know sure. what um, sodomy is. Yeah. No clue. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, we did, we did age appropriate stuff with our kids and we started, I mean, from the time they were two, uh, they had a very good vocabulary and they knew how to name their body parts. We never made it weird. You know, it's awkward. It's awkward for parents like us who grew up in that kind of a church environment where it was like, oh no, like you don't say penis, you know, right. like <laughs> right. it's, it's a body part. Yeah. A finger is a finger and ear is an ear and eye is an eye. A penis is a penis. Um, they're body parts. And you should know the proper anatomical names for them. Um, so we began we began that at like age two, and then um, you know as they get a little bit older, we start introducing the concept of nice people who um, who may not be that nice, uh, mm -hmm. who can do things to you that make you feel uncomfortable. So again, nothing that's traumatizing, uh, certainly nothing graphic or anything like that. But we just introduce that idea, and then as their mind develops a little bit more. Um, then we talk about specific things that they do, touching certain body parts, um, and and you know that's never okay. Um, we taught our kids that privacy is really important, um, and and eventually your kids, I mean they pick it up really quickly. But our kids got to the point where if they would go to the bathroom, 
they would kick their stuffed animals out of the bathroom and pull the door closed because they wanted their privacy, you know, and we, we never drew attention to it. We mm -hmm. just kind of sat back, Natalie and I sat back and we observed and we were like, that's pretty cool Yeah. that, you know, a three-year-old gets that concept that their privacy, th they own it. They own their privacy and they're, they're allowed to kick their stuffed animal out because they don't want to see the stuffed animal. Um, they don't want the stuffed animal to see them go into the bathroom because that's, you know, that's their time. That's their time to be private. Um, our kids always knock on the bathroom door before they come in. Um, and it's just, that's just what they do. That's great. Yeah. And then you've got these um, other friends and family in your life and you are trying to communicate boundaries for your children. Um, you talked about sleepovers. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you tell, how do you tell people, um, no, um, we don't do sleepovers. No, you can't babysit. No, you can't touch my kid. <laughs> yeah. Without sounding I mean, like an, uh, you know, a lunatic. Yeah. So I try not to pull the Google my name card, um, <laughs> you know, cause at the, at the end of the day, like, I think that's going to make me sound a little bit weirder than if I just say, you know what, like, here's my card. <laughs> yeah. Here's my card. Look me up. You'll know why I don't want my kid being babysat um, or, you know, spending the night. No, but we, you know, we just, um, we just very casually tell people like um, we just have certain boundaries for our kids and um, you know, we've, we've never been in a position where we've had to explain it or where parents were really weird about it. Cause we're not weird about it. You know, we're just like, you know, we just have, we just have different boundaries for the kids and um, this is what our boundaries are. Oh, okay. Oh, it's actually cool. surprising how many other parents come back and they're like, oh, that's, it's actually good. Um, they're like, you know, we've had other parents come back and say, we don't allow our kids sleepovers either. And we always thought we were bizarre and we thought that we were like the oddball parents. I'm like, no, those are your boundaries. And they're your kids at the end of the day, they're your kids. Uh, you're allowed to set the boundaries. Um, your kids are allowed to set their boundaries. Don't apologize for it. You don't know an explanation to people. Yeah, I remember going to sleepovers, um, a few kids' houses, and I was very fortunate. Nothing, nothing out of the ordinary happened. Um, you know, the worst thing that we did was spin the bottle. But um, um, yeah. <laughs> I remember those days. <laughs> yeah, you know, we play the stupid stuff like you know we jump off the roof into the swimming pool, and yeah, you know, yep. the girls would do each other's hair and makeup, and you know, the parents were in their bedroom watching television. It wasn't really, nothing really happened, thank God. But um, um, we broke um, out the old duels, non-alcoholic beer <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. my mom bought. I'm going to throw her under the bus here for a minute. <laughs> we thought we were hardcore. We were like, ooh, old duels. <laughs> I love your mom. She's, she's awesome. Um, I wanted to, to talk about your incredible um, podcast series on forgiveness. It was so yeah. good about using scripture to explain what real forgiveness is. And yeah. I teach this to my, my ladies in my group. And that's the last, that's the last chapter in the curriculum is forgiveness. Yeah. And I tell them, um, if you choose to forgive somebody, that doesn't mean that they're not going to go to prison or they don't get, you know, justice for the crimes they've committed. It doesn't right. mean that you allow them to abuse you any, any further. But I mean, you've, you've yeah. taken a, a step further in your series about what, what forgiveness is according to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, my, well, it's not my thing. I mean, this is a very Jewish view of forgiveness. Mm. You know, if you look at any Jewish literature, um, they look at us like we're crazy, uh, and rightfully so, with this pop culture idea that that the only way that you're going to find healing is if you forgive somebody, and you know, there's no accountability. Your abuser won't even know that you're forgiving them. And that forgiveness is for your healing. And um, I, I started hearing. I started hearing this when I got into advocacy, and it's it's like the view on forgiveness. And I was like, that makes no sense. Um, that 
you can't find healing unless you forgive your abuser, um, that somehow you're full of bitterness and hatred and you're going to harbor all this stuff inside of you if you haven't forgiven your, your abuser. Um, forgiveness is absolutely a gift. I mean, throughout scripture from, from cover to cover, forgiveness is a gift for the person who owes the debt, right? Mm -hmm. Like our forgiveness from God is a gift. It is mm -hmm. an absolute gift that we don't deserve, right. um, but it's also conditioned, right? It's conditioned upon our, our repentance. Yes. It's conditioned upon, upon righteousness and, and living our lives right. Like God doesn't just say, well, no matter what you've done or what you're doing right now, I'm going to forgive you for my own healing. Can you imagine God saying that? <laughs> it right? sounds absurd. Right. Like to forgive as the Lord forgives means exactly that. I take that quite literally. Um, even Jesus, when he forgave people, it was a gift. Uh, the woman who was, um, the woman who was rubbing snot and tears with her hair into Jesus' feet, right? Absolutely the most humiliating scene that's, that's, that's written in the New Testament. Absolutely. If you actually stop and, and read that story really slowly, mm -hmm. you'll realize that this woman was an absolute humiliated ball of mess. Mm -hmm. That she was so broken and remorseful and ashamed of herself. Um, and Jesus didn't say, honey, you need to forgive all the, all the people who've wronged you in order to, you know, scrape yourself off the floor and find healing. He didn't do that. Instead, he forgave her because she was broken. She was humble. She was, uh, she was a hot mess laying on the floor, literally grasping Jesus's feet. Mm -hmm. That's what's required to receive forgiveness. Um, and so I find it interesting that we require victims to forgive their abuser while requiring nothing of the person who abused them. It's just completely backwards. Yeah, all throughout scripture, God requires repentance. John the Baptist, you mentioned in your podcast, mm -hmm. re you know, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent yeah. and be baptized. Yeah. Um, it wasn't very touchy-feely. <laughs> no, right. But when you do repent, what happens? You receive this abundance of forgiveness. Your debt is wiped out, which mm -hmm. is an incredible gift. So, you know, the other thing that I thought about too, I, I think it's such a strange message that forgiving somebody, that's, good, that's what's going to heal you. Have you ever, like, stop and think about this for a minute. Has somebody ever really wronged you? Like your current husband, right? Has he ever wronged you where you had to forgive him absolutely yeah, yeah. it sucks doesn't it and i right yeah, when you forgive him it's, you don't walk away forgiving forgiving your spouse when they've repented when you know and my wife and i we there are plenty of times that we've had to forgive each other i have never walked away from extending forgiveness to my wife and saying man do i feel healed now i feel good it's an awful thing to extend forgiveness, to give that gift to somebody to say, you no longer owe me anything. I'm wiping out your debt. It, it's, it's heavy. That's a burden. And it's supernatural as well. Yeah, absolutely. So it that takes... gift, you know, that gift of forgiveness is not for me. Mm -hmm. That gift of forgiveness is for my wife or for my brother or my sister, or whoever's mm -hmm. wronged me because they've repented and they've They've come seeking my forgiveness and I'm giving them that gift. It's not for me. So you'll find that, you know, throughout the Bible, there's never this idea that forgiving somebody is for your own, your own sake, your own healing. It's just not there. It's not in the scriptures. Um, and there are a lot of really good Jewish writings on this. Hmm, that's fascinating. Yeah. You know, at the same time, I don't, I don't let my, my ex-husband live rent free in my, in my head anymore. No. No, yeah. not at all. I I have I've come quite a ways in my healing journey now, but 
Yeah. It wasn't that way in the beginning. Um, when I left, um, there was a lot of anger and yeah, yeah. I, I, I forgave him and I told him so, but there were still a lot of emotions that yeah. took a long time to, to, um, subside so yeah yeah and i talk about withholding forgiveness and that's actually a gift to uh to the abuser um you know because if you think about that if somebody were to come to me if i hurt one of my best friends or if i hurt my wife if i if i did something that absolutely destroyed her and um, made her feel awful where i sinned against her for her to come to me and say i will not forgive you until Right. I will not forgive you until you you really repent and start paying back the debt that you owed. And then and only then will I forgive you. That would crush my soul and that would make yeah. me reexamine myself. That would make me do everything in my power to right those wrongs so that I could receive her forgiveness. Yes. That's that's a beautiful but if, part but about if she forgiveness. Just, you know, if she just was like, "Oh, I, you know, I forgive you," and you know, nothing's required of you. Okay, <laughs> cool. <laughs> you know, and then that enables abusers to to keep doing what they're doing. Um, exactly. So anyway, yeah, but I, you know, I certainly don't. I'm not telling people you can never forgive somebody without them repenting first because some people some people they're never do. going and that, and they're never going to ask their for it. yeah that's right so you know that's entirely up to them and i would never ever shame somebody mm -mm. Uh, for forgiving somebody uh, without them first repenting but that's just not the picture i see in scripture you know i think i think we really need to require a lot more of abusers before we even think about forgiving them and um, I wanted to ask how how the survivors um, of your dad's abuse, how are they doing today? Yeah, um, so most of them I think are doing really well. Um, some of, I say most of them because some of them I've kind of lost, lost touch with and, and I just don't know. Um, but the ones who I do know, they're, they're doing well. And I think part of that is just knowing that um, our whole family um, has been very vocal and very supportive of all of my dad's survivors. And we unapologetically would defend them and um, denounce what my dad did. I mean, there was nothing that, that justifies any of the abuse that my dad did. Mm -hmm. Anybody that you're in contact with that would be interested in uh, mending the soul or the healing side of it, um, certainly send them my way. I'd be glad to um, sure get him into one of my groups, give him the red carpet treatment. Absolutely. You have talked about self-care because you and I being advocates, it's really easy to burn out. Yeah. What are you doing to practice self-care for yourself? You know? Um, yeah. So I'm, I am a unicorn in a lot of different ways. Um, <laughs> My my one of my big outlets is of course the cold exposure. I love going out in the cold, um, breaking oh, yeah. ice in the middle of the winter and going for swims. Um, just you're in the polar bear club. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Yeah, I love cold nope, exposure. Nope, nope, nope. Um, but probably the number one thing, the number one thing is just um, turning our house into a sanctuary. My wife and mm. I have been very intentional about not letting bad things and bad thoughts and bad attitudes happen inside of our home. Mm -hmm. um, so every dollar that we put into remodeling our house um, goes to make it intentionally feel like a sanctuary. So, you know, um, we have a great big deck on the outside of the house. Um, we've put money into furniture on the deck where we just spend hours sitting on the deck. Um, I have a hammock chair that hangs in mm -hmm. an oak tree um, I, I heard just, you had I, a hot tub. We have a hot tub. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's those sorts of things where we're just, I mean, every day, um, I start my day at 630 in the morning and I pick the kids up at the bus stop at 230 in the afternoon and then my day's done. Hmm. And I, I spend the rest of the day playing ball in the yard with the kids and um, sitting in my hammock chair, sitting in the sun, playing in the snow. I need that time. Yes. Um, to just unwind and 
to forget about everything else, to be quite honest. Yeah, um, I've got my music and my garden outside. And I sew, I've got 12 gazillion hobbies. Can't yeah. wait to retire <laughs> so I can do all these <laughs> hobbies on top of right? my full-time job and doing the podcast. But um, I'm, I'm so glad to know you and yeah, support your ministry. And thank you so much for what you are doing. You know, not all heroes wear capes. I know you don't think of yourself as a hero, but nope. those survivors they would not be where they're at today without, you know, your family yeah. uh, stepping out. Yeah. Well, thank you too for your ministry. It's uh, super encouraging to link arms with other people and uh, to network and to know, like to see this growing number of advocates who are out there. I mean, there's been an explosion in, in the last five years, really. Um, Unfortunately, it's, it's exploded the, um, uh, the abuse and the, especially the pandemic and yeah, um, yeah, I wish we could work ourselves out of a job, but I we're, know we're always going to um, on this side of eternity. There were as long as there's sin, there's going to be abuse. But for our listeners, how can they get a copy of this book and connect with you and all the resources that you have? Yeah, so um, the book, is, it's available on Amazon, it's available on Barnes & Noble, um, probably any out outlet uh, where people order books, um, it'll be available. You can go to my website for my list of resources. Um, it's just my name, jimmyhinton.org. And then there, there you'll find, uh, I, I blog pretty regularly there. Um, we have the podcast that's uh, right on the homepage of the website. Um, I have videos. There's a whole free section of, of videos mm -hmm. that, of trainings that I've done. And that's just tons of free resources. Yeah. If you just, if you just watch and listen to the free resources that Jimmy has, um, you will be way ahead of everybody else out there on this particular subject. You will be armed with really valuable information. Thank you so much for coming on. I know you're so busy Absolutely. and I'm going to get your mom on here for her perspective. And Yeah, definitely. Well, God Diana, thank you. you so much for having me. It's been an honor. It's been great. God bless you. Yep. Same to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.